Our theme for this afternoon is Tillich's theological legacies. Now note that we've got legacies because we have such a rich group of presenters here, each from their own perspectives and their own way of looking at things. I would like to invite you, if you'd care to come down front, a lot of you look sort of faceless way back there. Uh, we will be hearing from uh, Professor Harvey Cox uh, from Harvard Divinity School, and he's going to talk on theology and culture. That will be our first speaker. I'm not going to introduce each one of them. We will go in turn. Uh, we will then hear from Professor Robert Russell, CEO the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences at the Graduate Theological Union in uh, Berkeley, California. And then Pamela Cooper-White on theology and psychology from Union. And finally, Willie Jennings on theology and black liberation thoughts, uh, and, that, and he's from Yale. So I'm looking very much forward to their commentary. When they have finished, we will have respondents to these papers. We have Marianne Stenger from the University of Louisville and John Tataminil from Union. I'm very much looking forward to them. Let's get underway. Harvey? Well, good afternoon, everyone. Can everyone hear me in the far reaches of this vast auditorium? You can always move it. There are some empty seats. There are lots and lots of empty seats here if you want to move in a little closer. Uh, make us feel a little cozier up here, too, I think. Uh, this is really quite a great honor for me as a person who had the privilege of studying with Paul Tillich in his brief five-year time at Harvard. I was even part of his famous home seminar that he had with doc doctoral students. And as you know, we marked this year the 50th anniversary of Paul Tillich's death in 1965, leaving many legacies. So it's a great honor to be here, and I thank those who invited me. I look forward to hearing from the other colleagues about these legacies. We'll hear a lot about legacies with reference to various areas of religion, culture, and science, and the rest. I want to focus in on what I think may be the most, or at least one of the most important legacies that Paul Tillich has left us, and that's his method of doing theology, which he called, as you all know, the method of correlation. I think it's important because it's applicable in so many situations with so many different reference points. The method of correlation. The method of correlation was, uh, a, a, uh, uh, especially as we move into a multicultural world, multi-global, multi-religious world, it's not, uh, it's, it, the, the method of correlation, I think, can be applicable across the board. I even have a Muslim student today, a doctoral student working with me, who is completely enamored of the method of correlation, Tillich's method of correlation, and is seeking to mine the uh, Muslim tradition and think about how the, it correlates with issues of urban design and city planning, especially in the non-Western world. So I'm eager to work with him on this whole uh, subject and once again work with the method of correlation. As you recall, there are two steps to the method of correlation. One is what might be called an exegesis of the culture, trying to uncover in the political and artistic 
and musical elements, social elements of any culture, what Tillich would call the underlying concerns, the ultimate concerns, or even the, as he called them at points, the religious questions which have to be made articulate. They're implicit in the culture and they have to be made explicit. The second step then is to go to the tradition. In his case, it was almost always the Christian tradition, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be, to find those symbols, stories, narratives, rituals, theological doctrines, which can be de-literalized and mined and used to respond to the questions that the culture is asking about for uh, about meaning, about the meaning of life. So it, it was a method of correlation with, with two steps. Now today I want to only engage in what might be called the first step of this method of correlation by looking at one particular expression of culture that I've been working on in the last couple of years, almost a foreign culture, because it's the culture of the Harvard Business School which is across the river, as you know, those of you who have been to Cambridge. And believe me, if you go to the Harvard Business School, you go into a culture which is very different, either from that of Harvard College or the, certainly the Harvard Divinity School. And as I've worked on this uh, uh, issue now for a couple of years, it's become clear to me that what we are dealing with here is a, is a whole cultural complex. In fact, I would call it a religious system. Uh, my colleague at Harvard, uh, who uh, wrote the book called, uh, uh, my, uh, Michael Sandel, wrote the book called What Money Can't Buy, in which he says, we used to live in a market economy, and we now live in a market society where everything seems to be for sale. I think we could talk about a market culture with its stories, its values, its myths, its institutions, and indeed a religious uh, uh, culture, a religious culture of the market, in which has its own myth of the fall, its own redemption stories, its own heroes, its own saints, its own institutions, its own temples, its own priesthood. It has the entire uh, paraphernalia of a religious system. And uh, for me, uh, a religious system needs always to be to be open, to be criticized. And, uh, and not to claim, not to claim uh, absolute authority, which I think more and more in our society the market religion is claiming. So let's look for a moment at the nature of this consumer society and its, its religious symbols. There was a time not too long ago when the activity of shopping, shopping and buying, was scrutinized almost entirely by economists. There's the price, there's the buyer, there's the salesman, there's the transaction, that's that. Increasingly, however, as many of you will have noticed, it's, a, it's a, an activity which has drawn the, uh, the attention of anthropologists, of cultural analysts, and more recently also of theologians, who've made it clear that shopping is badly misunderstood if it is examined exclusively as a, an economic activity in the narrow sense of the word. It's a symbolic action and a highly significant one because it makes 
the often hidden values of a society more explicit. It lays bare those ultimate concerns, to use Tillich's language, of our era of market consumer capitalism. Also, since religion involves the search for and the enactment of social and personal meaning, uh, what people buy, how they buy it, why they buy it, takes, uh, takes us on a, on, a, on a scale, a large, large scale in this case, and reveals something at the very heart of our consumer market society. Uh, <clears throat> now, um, for some observers, this most recent stage of the nature of uh, the market transaction or the study of the market transaction uh, quickly is quickly becoming not just a segment, albeit an important segment, of the culture, but is envelop enveloping the whole thing. That's what Michael Sandel means when he talks about the movement from a market economy uh, to a, a market uh, society and then to a market culture. Uh, at some level of consciousness or unconsciousness now, shoppers are sorting through and constructing the identity they want to possess and to project, and not just to project outward, but to project inward in a process of internalization. This is something we are learning now from the anthropologists who are studying shopping and uh, the psychologists who are looking into it as well. It's a, they begin to grasp themselves in new ways. A series of what might be called conversions goes on. Not just one conversion, but one conversion after another as people try to, uh, to cope with their inherently instable desires and hopes and, and wishes and to satisfy them by the symbolic activity of shopping. Uh, and uh, because now, of course, marketers are clear that people don't just buy something on the basis of its usefulness, its utility, or characteristics like that. They are, they are, are aware that people buy things because of their symbolic significance, of what they promise to give us even at the spiritual level. Therefore, in doing this kind of work, which I've been doing along with students from the business school, by the way, and a, and a faculty member over there, uh, it becomes clear that uh, people are, are searching for something, and therefore the distinction that we used to make between materialism and spiritualism, or the spiritual and the material, urging people to move away from materialism toward the spiritual, is no, no longer obtains. Because what is offered for a set of alternative identities by the market culture is presented in a spiritual vein. Here is something that will make you feel more complete, happy, blessed, anchored, and part of a community which will value you and you will uh, be valued uh, because of your membership in this, kind, in this community. Now, several theologians have begun to take this analysis done by the anthropologists and psychologists and others, and they've gone on to propose that this is just where the, quote, religious question, that, as Tillich would call it, the religious question comes in and needs to be examined and discussed. 
More and more, we do not buy commodities because of what the Marxists used to call their use value, but because of their symbolic value. So we're we're clearly into symbolic analysis and into the the, the idiom of theology. Looking for, people look for a deeper and more satisfying identity, something that gives them meaning in their lives, and this is what these, uh, what, what, uh, this is the way these material, material goods are uh, marketed. Uh, not so much as material goods, but as, uh, as spiritual goods, spiritual gifts, spiritual possibilities. The, uh, the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, wrote a book uh, a few years ago, which he called, very sagely, uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. The thesis of that book is that escaping materialism or the material doesn't, doesn't save us from the possessiveness, the yearning to possess to own, uh, to have. Rather, these, the, the, this impetus, these desires that we have can easily be attached and are often attached to what he called spiritual goods, moving us into what he called a spiritual, spiritual materialism. And he warned that this is uh, simply by moving from the material uh, to the spiritual doesn't eradicate or doesn't cure this underlying, uh, underlying uh, desire. So here we have it, a new culture uh, emerging. It's only emerged in the last uh, couple decades. In the earliest stages of, of capitalism, the religious and moral virtues which had to be taught were, were self-control, delayed gratification, thif- thrift, because... The early stage, in the early stages of capitalism, what the economy needed was to build up enough capital so that it could be used for the, for, for the growth of the economy. Now, however, and in the last couple of decades, we've left that stage behind and we've moved into consumer, uh, consumer capitalism. Overproduction, not underproduction, is the problem. What to do with all of these things that we're constantly churning out? especially after markets have been oversaturated. So you introduce a lot of ways to get people to buy things that they might not um, think they need. Uh, And you do this by marketing them as as satisfying a personal, psychological, and indeed spiritual, and I would say religious need, a religious need for meaning and, and community and all the things that they promise mainly through their, they, they promise mainly through their, uh, the uh, icons icon, and construction of their uh, uh, advertising, and especially television advertising, where we very rarely see products anymore which are touted for us, mainly because of their usefulness, utility. No, using this, buying this, will make us part of something, uh, the new generation, the Pepsi generation, the kind of people that we want to associate with or look like, and be like. So I'm suggesting here, by way of illustration, that of all the legacies we have from Paul Tillich, uh, and there are many, this one may be one of the most enduring, in part because of its uh, universal applicability across cultures, 
uh, across religions, uh, across various segments of the society. Remember, Tillich said these, the, the underlying religious questions are rarely explicit. They're implicit. They have to be uh, uncovered by a theological exegesis of the, of the culture before the second step in the correlation uh, can take place. Now, I met with some people yesterday from the Paul Tillich Society and uh, told them that what I've done here uh, is only the first step in the method of correlation, the step number one, the, uh, the uh, analysis, the exegesis of the culture. And we haven't uh, moved yet to step two. I asked them for some suggestions, and some of them made those suggestions, but I'm still on the lookout. So if anybody wants to accost me after the meeting and give me some really good hot ideas of how we mine the, the tradition to address these particular implicit and now made explicit uh, meaning questions uh, in the consumer culture, I'd be glad to talk with you. Now I'm going to sit back and enjoy what my colleagues say. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Harvey, for your wonderful presentation, kicking us off so admirably with Paul Tillich's famous method of correlation. I'll pick that up in relation to the sciences. I'm not going to talk about an analysis of scientific culture per se. That would be fascinating. I'm going to go directly to what I think are theological questions posed by science by its discoveries uh, for theology, and even suggest a modification of the beloved method of correlation. Now, it's important to note that um, Paul Tillich was not actually in dialogue with the natural sciences. So we don't have a lot of material, say, in the systematics, philosophy, culture, whatever, to work with. So what I'm going to do today is suggest some ways that Tillich's theology can be in such dialogue, and I will do so by going directly to what Tillich gave as the definition of a theological question in two parts. Uh, the object of theology is what concerns us ultimately, that which determines our being or non-being. You recall finite being is always a mixture of being and non-being, and therefore vulnerable to the threat of non-being, and therefore the angst which requires the courage to be. Science can be relevant to theology, I claim, when its theories raise questions of ultimate concern, questions which impact our being or non-being. I think these are almost so obvious that I'm hoping all of you already thought of 10 more than I'm going to say. I'll give three brief examples, one from Big Bang cosmology, one from quantum mechanics and evolution, and one from physical entropy in thermodynamics. Again, we're looking for theological questions posed by these sciences. So recall Tillich, I think almost unique in the history of Christian thought, recognized two meanings of ex nihilo. Obviously, he affirmed creation ex nihilo, but he had two meanings for it. The first is the usual one, creation out of absolute non-being, the being which threatens our being with non-being. Right? That's ugon. The second is the relative negation of being, or mayon, Really, it's the actualization out of the potential that's been created to make things actual. And it draws into our scope in the doctrine of creation the problem of the fall, which is the transition from essence to existence through the process of mayon. So both of those are part of the creation narrative, ex nihilo and mukon. I'll try to show how each is um, 
found nested in a scientific discovery of our universe. First, creation ex nihilo as Ukon and Big Bang cosmology. In this diagram, you see the universe uh, beginning with an absolute singularity, far left side, and then inflating very rapidly, and then expanding more slowly as it has uh, 13.7 billion years. Now its, its expansion is accelerating. Nevertheless, this is the standard picture of the universe we have in Big Bang cosmology. And you can ask me afterwards about how inflation and quantum gravity changed this view. Nevertheless, within this framework, and while we always move to framework to framework to framework to talk about theology and science, in this framework, there is an absolute beginning, a t equals zero, a beginning of time, uh, the absolute beginning of the universe. Now, this was known in the 60s, although it was debated because of steady-state cosmology, but it was known when Tillich was working on the third volume. Uh, and I want to point out the really very beautiful and profound and evocative theological question inherent in this discovery. The existence of the universe both as such, right, that, that it exists, and as having an absolute beginning because of T equals zero Big Bang cosmology, concerns us ultimately. Why do I say that? Because our personal being or non-being, my personal non-being or non-being and yours, is nested within the endlessly wider context of this Big Bang universe, without which we would not exist. Our existence and the theological question it raises is couched within a much wider, if I may say universally wider, context of the universe itself. The universe itself need not exist. That it exists is astonishing. Of course, the cosmological argument. But in particular, it exists in a way in which, like us, it has a finite past. It's got an age. It began, which in a way poses the most shocking fact that we can think of, that all that exists didn't and now does. Thus, the being or non-being of the universe, to use his term for a theological question, and in particular, its absolute beginning, t equals zero, poses a theological question of ultimate concern to us about our own being or non-being. Our question becomes the universe's question, or, in fact, we represent and, and embody, as Tillich would say, as a symbol, the very question of the universe's existence. And therefore, it points towards a creator. Second example, quantum mechanics. <clears throat> An example now of continuous creation as mayon, creation out of relative non-being, right? That amorphous non-being which is potent and can become actual existent being. According to quantum mechanics, a physical system with several potential states evolves deterministically until measurement. Here in this uh, little diagram, many have seen before the double slit experiment, the photon goes through both slits. How can one photon go through both slits? That's quantum mechanics. <laughs> then the system transitions. That's one of Tillich's favorite terms, the transition from essence to existence. The photon transitions um, in, instantaneously to a single actual state. In physics, it's called the collapse of the wave function. But that's really an instantaneous transition of physical states. Here in this diagram, the photon is recorded as a specific point on the screen. How can a wave be a point? 
as quantum mechanics. Heisenberg himself, in his early writings, appropriated Aristotle's distinction between potential and actual being to describe this very transition. And he hadn't read Paul Tillich. <laughs> and vice versa. It is a short step to Tillich's conceptuality of a move from potential being, which Tillich would call essential being, to actual being, which Tillich would call existence. There, thus, continuous creation is the theological response to this phenomena that goes on everywhere in nature. Everywhere a quantum mechanical process occurs and there's a collapse of the wave function. God continuously brings quantum systems from potentiality to actuality in time out of man, relative non-being. So we see both in the universe itself and in the processes of nature, creation ex nihilo in its two different accounts. And therefore, profound theological questions about our very existence and our existence as life, as coming into being and continuing to be in the dynamics of life. Third example comes from uh, thermodynamics and physics, namely entropy. A key term for Tillich in his characterization of life is ambiguity. The ambiguity of that which is blessed and that which is to be left behind in the eschaton. Entropy in physics exemplifies the profound ambiguity of life as both good and evil. Universal existential estrangement as the fall. What a wonderful symbol, right? to capture the myth of the fall and partially demythologize it, but still leave it with us. Entropy ultimately leads biological processes to decay, disease, and death. Without entropy, you wouldn't have those processes, and yet that's part of the tragic element of life, right? Not just death, but the ongoing process of decay um, and disease. Even the heat death of the universe, again, even as the universe had a beginning and is like us and raises a theological question, it has an end. Uh, it might be forever, but it's a, heat, it's a heat death. And it raises the profound theological question of, is the ambiguity of life ever overcome in the essentialization from existence to essence that Pillock talks about at the end of Volume 3? Is it there for the universe, too? Now, note too, interestingly, entropy is only a derivative of being, a change in the property, namely energy, of a material system. Entropy is a change in the property of a material system. It's a second-order derivative of what's real. It's not a reality. This is exactly what Tillich meant by uh, evil not having a being, which, of course, he gets from Augustine. It is suggestive of what Tillich calls the structure of destruction. Entropy is the structure of destruction even at the level of physics, not just the level of society and in, in, in the moral domain, but even at the level of physics, there's this vague sense of the structure of destruction, which is inevitable and yet not necessary. Entropy can catalyze new, because at the same time, there's the positive. Remember the ambiguity. Entropy can catalyze new biological complexity and speciation. Entropy drives evolution and makes possible the good and the beautiful in nature. Without entropy, we wouldn't have evolution. This is what Boltzmann could never find uh, in the 19th century and what Darwin found, that entropy is essential for evolution. I'm going to close with a longer example, which really involves his method of correlation and I would say making it an interaction model. And it involves celebrating one of the most lasting symbols he gives us uh, instead of levels, 
uh, in nature, which he rejects in his case against levels. Here's what he replaces it with, the multidimensional unity of life. And I want to take that symbol and put it briefly into dialogue with science. Quote from Tillich, second volume, <clears throat> the religious significance of the inorganic is immense, but is rarely considered in th by theology. A theology of the inorganic is lacking, but it has to be included in the present discussion of life, life processes and their ambiguity. So Paul was calling for a theology of nature in which even physics would essentially be included, physics and cosmology. This is for the theology of nature that Ian Barber and most of the scholars in theology and science study, a theology of nature. And I celebrate the fact that Paul Tillich saw that on the horizon and uh, gave us the imprimatur to go forward. Now let's look at one example of what he said about this in relation to his multidimensional unit of life. And let me close by suggesting a amplification of that method of correlation to include a both-way interaction. So remember his famous four categories, space, time, causality, and matter, or substance, sorry. He made a very interesting claim. This is really remarkable if you think about it. The categories change their character under the predominance of each new dimension. The categories change their character. Who would have thought that space or time or causality changed in their character? The inorganic dimension of it changes as it becomes organic. The inorganic space within an organism is not the inorganic space by itself. That's a really bold claim. Let's think about it. Not that the organic has the inorganic in it. Of course it does. But that the organic changes the nature of the inorganic when it's included in the organic. Space and time, if Tillich is right, are somehow changed by their inclusion within the biological. Now that's a rare claim. If, if according to Tillich, time in the dimension of life includes the inorganic physical time and the new features of time in the dimension of life, right? Um, anticipation, memory, the experience of mental states of time, if those are a change in the, phys the physical dimensions of time, it's a profound, it's a profound uh, claim. My question to Paul is, is this because of emergence? That is, new features arise as irreducible when the inorganic is contained in the organic. That'd be a modest claim, still a pretty bold one, but it'd be a modest way of saying it, right? So mental states are an emergent. They have new phenomena that physical states don't. Or is it unveiling? A manifestation, to use one of his favorite words, are the new features revealed that are already present as potential reality in the old, a kind of creation ex, ex meon. Are the new features as revealed that are, new features are revealed that are already present in potential reality of the old? Is that the case? So to summarize this, time in human experience is a form of duration that includes the past as memory and the future as anticipation of, in the extensive present. Our mental experience is durational. Our, we experience the present in light of the past and the future. Is such duration emergent in human experience and not to be found in physics, or is such duration present in the inorganic realm but unnoticed because of the limitations of the conceptual, conceptual tools of physics? The calculus in physics assumes point-like, durationless time. 
perhaps it misses the reality of temporal duration in nature. So if we look at this as an extension of the method of correlation, it suggests those of us who are interested in physics and Christian theology a la Paul Tillich could launch a series of research programs in physics that would look for duration in nature. You, you search for a new mathematics which embraces temporal duration, apply it to physics, and see if there's experimental evidence. Now that would be method of correlation on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually tried that out in a recent book, Time and Eternity, which is dedicated to Wolfhard Pannenberg. And because of uh, Google, I was able to put in these weird terms, temporal duration physics, and I found over three dozen uh, research programs in place right now which look at physics through this kind of lens. So it'd be an example of saying theology isn't just hermeneutics all the way down. We actually have cognitive claims which could lead us to a conversation with our partners in science which would be of tremendous benefit to both sides. Thank you, Paul Tillich. Good afternoon, and thanks for being here at this late hour. I represent today Paul Tillich's legacy in psychology, and I'm also going to um, expand that to pastoral psychotherapy or pastoral psychology. So at a meeting uh, at the AAR of the Psychology, Culture, and Religion Group some years back, we watched a video of Paul Tillich in conversation with Carl Rogers in 1965. It struck us as a group at the time, and in rereading the transcript, this still comes across, that these two men, known at the time as great men and as representatives of the respective traditions of psychology and theology, in the process of their conversation, replicated each one's method quite exactly. That is to say that Rogers, while offering his own point of view at times, spent much of his airtime artfully mirroring Tillich's statements and posing questions, and Tillich in every instance gave a lengthy and somewhat lecture-like answer. So Tillich's correlational method was enacted in vivo with psychology, the concerns of the world, raising up issues and questions, and theology slash the Christian message giving authoritative answers. Now we know that Tillich's correlational method was groundbreaking during his lifetime and that in fact he saw it as a much more mutual dialogue, dialogical process than has sometimes been characterized to be. Although in his essay, Existentialism and Psychoanalysis, he was still insisting that the interpretation of man's predicament by psychoanalysis raises the question that is implied in man's very existence. Systematic theology has to show that the religious symbols are answers to this question. Nevertheless, we know that Tillich was profoundly influenced by psychology, particularly in his earlier life by Freud, later by Jung, and still later, especially after coming to the United States, by a variety of humanistic and existential approaches to psychotherapy and psychology, including a deep friendship with the analyst Karen Horney, and ongoing rich interaction from 1941 to 1945 as a member of the New York Psychology Group. And that group included such people as Eric Fromm, Rollo May, Carl Rogers, the anthropologist Ruth Benedict, several Jungian analysts, several Union seminary professors, 
and the pastoral theologian Seward Hiltner, among others. Earlier, in the years after World War I and on into the 1930s, much of the influence of psychology on Tillich was through personal relationships. In psychiatrist Earl Loomis's words, his recovery of the idea of the demonic doubtless served him as one major bridge between religio-philosophical and analytical thinking. His circle of bohemian socio-political friends put him constantly in touch with psychoanalytically informed intellectuals. The influence of psychoanalysis and psychology on Tillich has been examined in detail by Terry Cooper in his book, Paul Tillich and Psychology. Cooper carefully analyzes in particular the discussions of the New York group, which in his words, quote, dealt with issues that are very much with us today, such as whether faith can be psychologically explained, the meaning of transcendence, the relationship between psychotherapy and ethics, the appropriateness of self-love, and whether human love is parallel with divine love. In Tillich's interactions with the New York group, Cooper writes, in my view, Tillich's involvement in the New York psychology group reinforces the notion that he practiced a method closer to the revised correlational approach. I assume Cooper is here talking about David Tracy primarily. Tillich engaged answers as well as questions. He did not assume a privileged position in which other people simply brought up secular questions. He was quite aware, for instance, that Fromm held a competing worldview with its own answers and resolutions to the problems of human existence. And I should say, um, Fromm was an adamant and articulate atheist existentialist, so they had a, a clear divide on that point. So Cooper goes on to say, Tillich did not simply answer Fromm's questions. Instead, he disagreed with Fromm's solutions. So the influence on Tillich of psychology in general and psychoanalysis in particular is woven throughout his works. Many of the deep existential themes he revisited in his work over and over have both psychological and theological resonances, particularly perhaps in the realm of theological anthropology. In Tillich's words, man, sick, must be considered under three aspects. First, under the aspect of his created goodness or original innocence. Second, under the aspect of the distorted existential situation in which he finds himself actually. Third, under the aspect of his rehabilitation through healing or saving powers which he experiences in life and in history. End quote. The human experiences of fear of death, fear of the unknown, Loneliness and guilt were primary thematic issues during Tillich's lifetime for both psychoanalysts and theologians, and both were deeply interested in healing and change. Again, in Tillich's words, the old being of estrangement from oneself, others, and life in general, with its attendant risks of cynicism and despair, toward actualization of new being, of reconciliation and transformation, Tillich reframed the category of sin from Augustinian concupiscence to the inescapable human condition of separation and alienation from self, from others, from life, and from God. Tillich embraced the mid-century language of human potential and saw the aim of pastoral care in particular to assist persons in coming to self-acceptance, not as resignation, but as existential courage in the face of the human condition, the courage to be. While it is therefore relatively easy to discern the influence of psychology on Tillich, 
it is somewhat harder to pin down Tillich's direct legacy on psychology or in psychology. In one sense, much of Tillich's influence can be said to be indirect. Through years of ongoing intellectual ferment and exchange with such figures as Fromm, May, Loomis, Rogers, and others, Tillich held his colleagues' feet to the fire, keeping the philosophical, if not the traditionally theological, foundations of existential therapy and psychological theory at the forefront of these psychologists thinking about both theory and practice. In Cooper's book, Tillich and Psychology, he gives 23 out of 218 pages overall to the topic of Tillich's ongoing relevance. Nevertheless, I've come to decide that Tillich's influence is directly discernible in at least three particular arenas. First, the theory and practice of a branch of psychology called existential psychotherapy. Second, the theory and practice of pastoral counseling and psychotherapy. And third, methodology in pastoral and practical theology through Tillich's method of correlation. So first, existential psychotherapy. A search through current existential psychotherapy websites does not typically name Tillich as a source. You more commonly find figures like Kierkegaard, Camus, Nietzsche, and Viktor Frankl. Although the Wikipedia article does mention him as having influence through translations from his German works, along with Otto Rank, the Swiss analyst Ludwig Binswanger, Karl Jaspers, Martin Buber, Hans-Georg Gadamer, and others. But one of the most influential existential psychoanalysts or psychotherapists in the 1970s and 80s, James Bugenthal, whose book, psycho, two books, Psychotherapy and Process and also The Art of Psychotherapy, were required reading in many humanistic and pastoral counseling programs, and he was directly influenced by Tillich's book, The Courage to Be. Bugenthal saw in Tillich's language of ground of being and the courage to overcome the inherent anxiety of being human, a congenial spiritual, though not explicitly religious, way of thinking about the goals of therapy. Therapy is opening a door to greater human freedom and exercise of ethical responsibility. Tillich is also cited by Irvin Yalom, through his major textbook, Existential Psychotherapy, particularly in reference to ontological anxiety and the failure to live one's own allotted life. Yalom quotes Tillich saying, neurosis is the way of avoiding non-being by avoiding being. For Yalom, such insights did not replace the dynamic insights of Freud and Jung, but reoriented therapy toward the root anxiety of human beings, quote, twisting between two fears, the fear of life and its intrinsic isolation, and the fear of death. For Yalom, the goal of therapy was to help individuals inhabit their full potential, to inhabit their lives. Moving on to pastoral counseling and psychotherapy, in addition to his intellectual influence on existential psychology, Tillich was closely involved during his years in America with the emerging field of both clinical pastoral education and pastoral counseling. On the one hand, promoting the importance of pastoral theology among systematic theologians with whom he had great influence, and on the other hand, participating in conferences of pastoral theologians, therapists, and chaplains, and serving on the board of the journal Pastoral Psychology. 
While a professor at Union Theological Seminary, he was a strong supporter of the founding of the curricular concentration in psychiatry and re religion, and his works have been taught to generations of pastoral theologians and practitioners for decades. Tillich stated, quote, care, including pastoral care, is something universally human, and care is essentially mutual. He who gives care also receives care. Tillich's definition of pastoral care in his address to a very early meeting of the National Conference of Clinical Pastoral Education in 1958 is still relevant today, and this is a definition that many of us still use, that pastoral care is a helping encounter in the dimension of ultimate concern. A helping encounter in the dimension of ultimate concern. In fact, it may be more relevant and more widely accepted today as the whole field of pastoral care with its long-standing embeddedness in Protestant Christian theology and helping paradigms, is now being challenged by a need for a much wider interreligious and intercultural approach. In the shift in nomenclature from pastoral care to spiritual care in medical and nursing departments, hospitals, prisons, and military chaplaincy, we see both Tillich's definition and method, grounded in his own Pauline and Lutheran tradition, and in the Christian message, but even more deeply grounded in the ineffable, the unconditional, the ground of being from which all religious and spiritual traditions mysteriously arise. These insights of Tillich resonate with much more recent developments in pastoral theology, care, and counseling in which post-colonial notions of hybridity and more postmodern constructivist and narrative influences are being adopted in pastoral training using textbooks for example, by Carrie Doring, Emmanuel Larte, Christy Kozad-Nuger, and myself, especially regarding concepts of intersubjectivity and relationality. A dialectical, hermeneutical, and intercultural sensibility is in the air in pastoral theological theory and practice today. Now, to test out what actual influence Tillich has had on contemporary psychotherapy, I did a bit of crowdsourcing among three groups of practice the practice of contemporary therapists. First, the International Association of Relational Psychoanalysts and Psychotherapists, or IARP, a secular organization of contemporary analysts doing cutting-edge theory and practice, so that was the first group. The second group was the Society for the Exploration of Psychoanalytic Therapies and Theologies, or SEPT, an organization that grew out of CAPS, the Christian Association for Psychological Studies, has a bit more evangelical flavor, and the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, or AAPC, in which liberal mainline clergy predominate. By email, I pose the question, how, if at all, has Paul Tillich had an influence on your theory and practice of psychotherapy? And I added, even if your answer is none at all, or Paul who, I'd like to hear from you. I received no responses at all from the secular analysts, not one. A few members of the SEPT group responded as follows. Janet Stauffer, the professor of marriage and family at Evangel Evangelical Seminary in Myerstown, Pennsylvania, wrote, a mentor once said to the no is also a yes to life, attributing it to Paul Tillich. I have used that repeatedly in helping persons who are over-obligated to others to find permission, indeed the demand that true giving requires both yes and no. Another Christian psychologist and marriage and family therapist, Gary Ventimiglia, stated at first that he was more influenced by Buber than Tillich, 
but then revised his response, saying, your question stimulated thoughts about Buber and Tillich, and also the latter's relationship to Rollo May, whose writings have influenced me very much. In starting to think about all this, I remembered my particular beefs with Tillich's most famous work, The Courage to Be. This is a really useful book on the development of atheistic existentialist thought and its impact on 20th century theology. My beefs with Tillich are more on the theological side concerning his God above God and absolute faith concepts. And, th and this is from a more evangelical Christian counselor. Yet the latter introduces Tillich's love of the importance of an existential response to the real in life. So I remember that he wrote a particularly helpful section in the Theology of Culture entitled the Theological Significance of Existentialism and Psychoanalysis. So I looked at that again and saw my notes in it, and lo and behold, I really like what he says, and actually do practice according to some of his assertions. I knew this when I first read the book 10 plus years ago, I just forgot about it. So you could say that unconsciously I have been influenced by his thought for many years now. In the two other only, response, only two other responses from Sept, one said not at all, and the other said he was sure Tillich was there in the background somewhere, but he couldn't really identify how. The happy surprise came from the pastoral counselors. I had 24 responses. Seven of those, albeit seven of those, took the time to respond not much or not at all. One indicated that he had shifted in mid-career from Tillich to Bart as his primary theological resource. The remaining 17 had very positive responses. Many cited having been profoundly shaped by Tillich's ground of being and the concepts of existential anxiety, person in environment, and ultimate concern. The courage to be, love, power, and justice, and you are accepted were the most often cited texts. One had paired Tillich's theology with Kohut's self-psychology theory. Several acknowledged Tillich's influence but considered it indirect from their early training. And now I'll give you just a few examples from this group. Brian Hooper, a pastoral counselor in Nashville, said, we had to read Tillich as part of my training to become an AAPC fellow. My mentor had done his PhD in Tillich, and so even if not widely read in Tillich, I know I was influenced in a second-generation way. Additionally, the idea of being and non-being together with conceiving of God as the ground of being, has indeed influenced my ability to address my client's spiritual concerns, quite apart from religious agreement or disagreement. And long ago, I was touched by the idea that faith is accepting that we have been accepted. This has assisted me through my own crises of faith, listening for the existential anxiety and assisting my clients to find hope in accepting self as accepted by God or the ground of being has been immensely valuable, and I think it has especially assisted me to accept them even as they are undifferentiated from some crisis through which they are journeying. Scott Sullender, a professor at San Francisco Theological Seminary, wrote more of Tillich's influence on his personal spiritual formation. He said, in effect, Tillich and Tillich's thought saved me for the Christian faith. It made sense of the Christian faith and of the human predicament in ways that provided me with a map, guided me in my subsequent spiritual and psychological development. His courage to be marked up and ragged still sits on my shelf. Pastoral counselor Cheryl Marshall stated, I still find his work centering. 
Some of the most elaborated responses came from several senior practitioners in the field. John Patton, now retired from Columbia Seminary and past president of AAPC, ACPE, and the Society for Pastoral Theology, so he kind of is Mr. Pastoral Theology, he wrote, my Chicago dissertation was entitled A Theory of Interpersonal Ministry Based on the Systematic Theology of Paul Tillich and the Psychological Theory of Harry Stack Sullivan. Those two writers have clearly influenced my theory and practice of pastoral counseling, which is inclusive of pastoral psychotherapy. The generic way of expressing the thesis is that the practice of care and counseling requires both a conscious expression of what the therapist represents, in Tillich's words, transparency to the divine, and an explicit theory of the way to practice sensitivity, security, and an honest and genuine expression of the therapist's self. In my last little book on pastoral counseling, I described this as relational wisdom, the pastor's specialty in an interdisciplinary context. Harville Hendricks, a pastoral counselor and founder of Imago Couples Therapy, made popular by Oprah, reflected, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Tillich and Freud's view of anxiety. I would never have put those things together with Harville Hendricks. Um, Tillich was my theological mentor in divinity school and saved me from exiting religion and theology altogether with his ontology. While I have modified his views from the singularity of being to being as connecting, his ground of being as the source and his theory of anxiety as the imagination of non-being, a terror behind all human suffering, has been a deep guide and source for all my work in psychology and couples therapy. He moved theology from Christian provincialism to inclusiveness, and his view of anxiety included the psychological ground of all suffering. He is beyond contemporary in his depth. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of things for the sake of time, but I do want to highlight one of our younger respondents, Sirot Saroyakul, a professor of religion, psychology, and counseling at Loma Linda University, wrote as follows. When I got married, my professor gave me a gift. It was Paul Tillich's Systematic Theology, Volumes 1 to 3. Interesting wedding gift. <laughs> Took me three years to complete reading. When I did my qual, he was one of the theologians I picked. Being from a Buddhist country, Sirotis from Thailand, Tillich makes so much sense, particularly his concept of non-being and the courage to be in the midst of non-being. I think in many different ways it takes Buddhism to a different level. In Tillich, it is not just the ability to embrace non-being, but the courage to live meaningfully in the midst of non-being. So for me, Tillich helps me learn to embrace finiteness, vulnerability, brokenness, mental illness, and even death with the courage to maintain goodness and compassion even when confronted with non-being. And David Augsburger, who wrote Pastoral Counseling Across Cultures in the 1980s, um, said a lot of similar things, and he concluded by saying um, he would especially note how African-American doctoral students found a home in Tillich's thought, which had been suggested by the many uses of Martin Luther King, Jr. It may be worth noting that most of my respondents were pastoral counselors in their 50s or older. Tillich's direct influence was certainly strong among my generation and older colleagues who read Tillich in our divinity and doctoral programs, and existentialism was the exciting intellectual paradigm of our time. 
With feminism, womanism, post-colonialism, and the increase of published writings from women and communities of color and the global south, there has been a concomitant increase in the influence of feminist and liberation theologies and indigenous experientially based paradigms for pastoral theology and care. Pioneering voices in this move to authorize experience as a source for theology certainly included James Cone's Black Theology of Liberation, in which he quoted Tillich extensively, and Ada Maria Isasi Diaz's Mujerista Theology, among a growing number of others. In the postmodern era following the Holocaust, the atom bomb, and the Vietnam War, suspicion of authorities also led to the erosion of influence of great men, including the great European and American male thinkers of the 19th and mid-20th centuries. So Tillich's influence is probably waning among younger scholars and practitioners in the pastoral field, and yet, as Tillich's own path-breaking intuitions about the importance of human experience as a source for truth and the correlation between theology and life in the world may have also paved the way, with or without direct attribution, for a more experience-grounded, systematic, and practical theological method in the past two decades or so. So I want to conclude just briefly by talking about Tillich's influence on pastoral and practical theological methodology. Tillich, like all existentialist thinkers, emphasized the importance of context in theology at a time when systematic theology was often so abstract as to be unintelligible to all but an elite few scholars in the ivory tower or steeple. At roughly the same time, psychology, at first through field theory and family systems theories, was breaking down the one-on-one -on -one medical model of psychotherapy established during the heyday of a particular type of classical psychoanalysis in the U.S. through the 1970s or so. And pastoral counseling, with few exceptions, pretty much left psychoanalysis cold after the 1960s. Regrettably, from my point of view, but that's a matter for another session. Because a theological method of correlation between theology and the world or between the human person and the divine seemed to be more easily correlated with either a Rogerian human potential approach or with the then more contextual family systems approach. In pastoral theology and practical theology more generally, as that umbrella term has begun to take on life of its own as an academic discipline more recently, Tillich's method of correlation has probably been the most significant framework for all our work. This method has been used most in recent times through a further critique and elaboration by David Tracy as mutual critical correlation, in which both theology and the world pose questions and both give answers, and the methods of social science and hermeneutical analysis can be applied to both. Mark Klein-Taylor's liberation-oriented work in remembering Esperanza has given further impetus in pastoral theology to viewing experience and theory or theology as a false dichotomy. Viewing experience and theory or theology, and, and now there is a growing number of methodological texts in practical theology in which some form of generative spiral is being used to theorize the interplay of both, on the one hand, experience, and on the other hand, theory and theology. So, for example, Don Browning's Practice Theory Practice Model, Emmanuel Larte's Learning Cycle for Liberative Pastoral Praxis. Even as systematic theology as a discipline has moved increasingly to embrace human experience and the relevance of theology for practice, as of the 20th century, concern with extremes of human suffering, 
evil, trauma, and the question of theodicy have perhaps eclipsed the theme of existential anxiety per se, although they are related. But theologians, both systematic and practical, continue to walk through the door till it threw open, correlating human experience with theological insight. In the words of Jürgen Moltmann, theology now must address the open wound of life in this world. Thank you. I want to thank the committee for giving me the honor of participating on this illustrious panel and offering a few remarks on the legacy and genius of uh, Paul Tillich. I was introduced to Paul Tillich through the work of Henry H. Mitchell in his classic text, Black Belief, and through the early work of James Cone in his groundbreaking books, Black Theology and Black Power, and A Black Theology of Liberation. There I saw the work of a philosophical theologian being used as a fabulous tool, a weapon for emancipation. These theologians introduced me to Tillich's project, famously stated in his epic text, Theology of Culture, where he states, religion and culture have always been at the center of my interest. Most of my writings try to define the way in which Christianity is related to secular culture, end of quote. What I gained from Tillich was one particular way of seeing the religious that continues to haunt my work. For me, the genius of Tillich was in his posing the possibility of seeing the religious dimension of cultural creation and read through the work of Mitchell, Cone, Wilmore, King, and a host of other theologians and pastors of seeing the religious dimensions of cultural resistance. What if we understood cultural creation and cultural resistance as theological products and projects and not existing in some self-separate realm called the secular and isolated from the religious and the theological? This question, gleaned from the thought of Tillich, showed me one possible way to overcome the antagonisms between secularity and religion. Tillich was the master of overcoming that antagonism through his theology. Religion, he said, is the aspect of depth in the totality of the human spirit. The religious aspect points to that which is ultimate, infinite, unconditional in man's spiritual life. Religion opens up the depths of man's spiritual life, which is usually covered by the dust of our daily life and the noise of our secular work. Tillich's work conjured intellectual confidence in religious and theological work for generations of students. Much like Schleiermacher, though he did not warm to the comparison, Tillich made religious reflection viable in increasingly secular space by opening secular space to reveal its nascent spiritual reality. 
Tillich's thinking in this regard fitted well in the American theological landscape and the transformation of theology after 1945. The difference for theology after 1945 was the American difference specifically the effects of the United States of America on the theological landscape of the church in the world, which I don't think we understand sufficiently. From the site that dominated nuclear testing and from where the expansion of capital would be most decisive on the global stage, a new way of imagining the world's redemption surrounded Christian theology in America. The United States staged the universal like few other nations after 1945. It deployed a convening power that was nothing less than Catholic. To do theology from this site, from the United States, was to do theology from an imperial position that concealed its own imperialism. The emerging American theological form an imperial form was one that imagined it could convene the religious imagination, drawing all peoples to gaze upon its architecture from this advantage site. Tillich's appeal to so many, especially African-American religious scholars, was twofold. First, in his invitation to discern the deep structures of religious existence within the cultural work of a people. In this way, he affirmed and deepened an aesthetic and an analytic already being deployed among African-American scholars that sought to locate the essence of a people in its existence. Tillich's thought resourced ways of characterizing the religious dimensions of what Henry Mitchell famously described as folk religion. This was discerned by so many black scholars as a, direct, as a direction with the emancipatory possibilities of overcoming a suffocating Eurocentrism in theology and religious reflection. Tillich's ontology suggested a wider landscape on which to grasp the relevatory both in terms of the fundamental structures of human existence concretely realized among black peoples and the nature of the divine acting on their lives. For Tillich, as you all know, secular and religious spheres, as they were being conceived in American thought and more broadly Western thought, promoted forms of estrangement that hindered our ability to understand the ontological structure of human existence. This critique registered deeply with black readers of Tillich, who were clear about the spiritual density of black life and sought a way to invite black folks alienated from religion, especially Christianity, or locked in religious rivalry or competition or contention to discern together the ground of their cultural being. The direction of his thought flowed along the same lines as a number of religious scholars who sought the religious architectonics of black life beneath the surfaces of cultural expression. Tillich's work suggested the possibilities of teasing out the realities of ultimate concern that might serve as fertile ground for the articulation of a theological vision commensurate with actual black life. Of course, 
For many, Tillich was only a stepping stone toward more culturally grounded conceptualities of religious experience. Yet Tillich's basic intellectual frame proved decisive and is still, it still influences a whole host of black scholars who may not even acknowledge and may with resistance acknowledge his influence. The second point of appeal was Tillich's conceptuality of the symbolic. There have been hundreds, dare I say thousands of treatments of Tillich's idea of the symbolic, which I need not repeat here. The power of the symbolic was, as deployed by Tillich is its ability to gesture simultaneously in two directions. It affirms the specifics of religious practice, taking seriously their historic grounding and their internal logics. Additionally, the symbolic participates in the reality that it signifies and thereby makes room for confessional considerations and respect and respect, excuse me, the integrity of adherence to any and every religious practice. Yet the other direction gestured toward with the Tillichian symbolic was the opening up of space between the symbol and the deeper realities it signified. The symbolic meant the loosening of religious form, making possible the creation of new forms, new symbols that expressed ultimate concern. Black religious scholars immediately seized on the possibilities of new, more culturally authentic religious form that need not be in competition with traditional forms, even Eurocentric religious forms. Yet the symbolic intillic, as we all know, reached far beyond religious ritual to conceptualities and to what we might all today, what we might call today, imaginaries, especially the racial imaginary that James Cone so powerfully anticipated in his early accounts of blackness that drew heavily from Tillich's vision of the symbolic. The Tillichian symbolic was the site of, for considering the constructive, creative possibilities of religious consciousness and for a hermeneutic that might resource ways to more precisely see its political, cultural, and social deployments. But with Tillich, we also find its profound therapeutic resonances, as my colleague said so brilliantly. The symbolic was the site where healing was possible, where our, as he said, our personal center is grasped by the manifestation of an inaccessible ground and abyss of being. So, end of quote, so many readers of Tillich, especially African-American scholars and pastors, saw in this an articulation of divine presence that could easily be mapped onto black church and black religious realities. And beyond this, many saw the possibilities of a spirituality that promised more dexterity and flexibility than normally associated with the symbolic economies of Christian faith. Tillich's project, offered a way to speak to the secular age and resource the possibilities of a spirituality attuned to its problems. He offered a form of faith in translation that also presented opportunities for liberationists to envisage forms of faith that not only honored the cultural performances of a people, but invited new cultural creations that would speak to present moments of struggle. While I do not share 
his ontology and find his configuration of the subject that helpful at this moment. He does offer us great wisdom in how to attend to the relevatory density of aesthetic creation and cultural resistance. This, for me, makes Tillich a constant, relevant conversation partner. Thank you very much. I'm honored to respond to the insightful presentations and want to thank um, all four of them uh, for the presentations that they have given. Rather than respond directly to each paper, I shall offer some general comments that connect to them, but also consider aspects of Tillich's legacies that have not yet been addressed as a way to broaden our discussion and I've been asked to include at least a small piece dealing with uh, feminist, his influence on feminist theology. Not surprisingly, Tillich's method of correlation, the role of experience in theology, and the possible applicability of his broad analyses to specific topics have been highlighted by the panelists. Truly, these are central benefits of Tillich's theological legacy in many diverse areas. But I want to note some areas that have not been talked about, both to consider aspects that have not had as much impact, but also to point to elements that have or could have significant for significance for present theological work. It is noteworthy that no one discussed Tillich's understanding of revelation, the reality of God, Christology, the doctrine of spiritual presence, or the kingdom of God, all major sections of his systematic theology. I am not surprised, but I want to emphasize that much of what many of us find of lasting significance or of helpful applicability is Tillich's theological methodology and his many analyses of religion and culture. Much less do people carry on his specifically theological doctrines. Some scholars have suggested in the past that Tillich played a role in the founding of the American Academy of Religion. Not a direct role, but an influence in looking at religion through the lenses of a variety of disciplines and approaches. Not only psychology and science represented here, but also philosophy, sociology, interreligious work, and more. His phenomenological analysis of faith or religion is ultimate concern, and his assertion of the interconnection of religion and culture have been picked up by many scholars, as Harvey Cox and Willie Jennings did today. Even the Supreme Court made use of Tillich's idea of religion as ultimate concern in a decision on conscientious objection in 1965. That's United States versus Seeger. One could also turn to the radical Tillich that pushed doubt, relativized religious claims, and disrupted traditional theological and philosophical approaches. Among those who moved on from that side of Tillich are Death of God theologians, Thomas Altizer and Gabriel Bahinian, black theologian James Cohn, already mentioned, and feminist theologian Mary Daly. Russell Ray Manning has recently published an edited volume entitled Retrieving the Radical Tillich that includes essays that relate Tillich to Adorno, Zizek, philosophical atheism, the critique of imperialism, and much more. 
In several autobiographical statements, Tillich indicates that he saw himself, quote, departing from accepted lines of belief and thought, end quote, both in Germany and in America. His ontological analyses of all reality, including the concepts of courage, love, power, and justice, offered a depth of understanding of our world that brought together philosophy, psychology, and politics, as well as religious ideas. Bob Russell opens up new applications of Tillich's ontological ideas in his connection and his understanding of humans in his connection um, to, of religion and science. And Cooper White also indicates impact of ideas um, from the courage to be for several psychologists and counselors. I would add that some early feminist theologians saw Tillich's ontological theology as an alternative to traditional male-dominated Christian theology. It is interesting to note that Tillich recognized this dimension of his thought in a brief discussion of female symbolism in relationship to the Trinity in the third volume of the Systematic Theology. He suggests that his symbol, the ground of being, could point to several mother qualities and that his emphases on the power of being, the self-sacrifice of Jesus as the Christ, and his use of spiritual presence reduce the predominance of, male, of the male element in the symbolization of the divine. And let me just mention um, Mary Daly incorporated aspects of uh, Tillich's ontological concepts in her 1973 groundbreaking work, Beyond God the Father, even as she um, also moves well beyond Tillich. But she did see his theology as potentially liberating, um, although too detached from sexual oppression. And Sally McFaig, in her early book, Models of God, picks up on Tillich's recognition of the mother quality, but develops it much more fully um, in relation, as a counterpoint to God the Father. And with her understanding of the world as God's body, she moves well beyond Tillich's theology. But I note that his understanding of the power of being, participating in everything that is, has parallels to her discussion of um, the world as God's body. Another area of Tillich's thought that I think deserves more attention is his theological ethics, especially as expressed in his ontological analysis in Love, Power, and Justice. Even more than his analysis of love, his insights about power, equality, and justice can be helpful in addressing current politics. His affirmation of equality, freedom, and community as essential aspects of justice works well with United Nations statements about women's rights or political critiques of economic inequality. But especially striking is his understanding of the complex nature of power, both for personal relations and for group relations. He recognizes that every encounter of one human with another involves relationships of power noting that such power can be expressed in gestures as well as language. Moreover, he sees every encounter as a struggle of power with power. The ideals of justice become mired in political struggles. As Willie James Jennings noted, Tillich offered an understanding of faith that opened up possibilities for liberation, both in the secular arena as well as in religious communities. For some, his ideas opened up the possibility of resistance, as has been talked about. 
I suggest another aspect that holds promise, and that is his critique of idolatry, his argument that no finite being is ultimate in itself. And in the first volume of the Systematic, Tillich makes this statement, quote, justice is the criterion which judges idolatrous holiness, end quote. I know that Stephen Ray has made a very incisive cultural analysis incorporating Tillich's discussion of the demonic in relationship to critical race theory. We need more such analysis of how peoples and even ideas such as capitalism are absolutized in ways that lead to injustice for another group of people. As Harvey Cox noted in his presentation, religious cultural exegesis today may require a greater degree of specificity than what Tillich provide, provided. Perhaps this reflects our living in a postmodern era of plurality where universal claims and grand narratives are suspect. But what is also interesting that it is precisely the more universal aspects of Tillich's thought that allow for and perhaps even invite us to apply them to specific aspects of our culture and politics. Sometimes I think we overuse Tillich's idea of ultimate concern as we see dimensions of it not only in our consumer culture but in sports or other forms of popular culture. Do these activities really reflect ultimate concern with deep meaning? And if for some they do, then perhaps we need cultural critique that questions whether such ultimates are really ultimate. We can even ask whether people hold anything as really ultimate or whether many simply engage in various intermediate concerns, moving from one activity to another, living in the moment more superficially than deeply. Mm. Cooper White suggests that in her field, perhaps those most influenced by Tillich are people in their 50s and older. Yet she also notes that it may be Tillich's emphasis on experience as a source of truth that opened up the many expressions put before us today. Will future theologians of culture, science, psychology, race, gender, and ethnicity connect to Tillich, or will they continue to move well beyond him, just as he moved beyond many aspects of the traditions of his own time? I suggest that Tillich's legacy lies not only in his universalizing approach that can be applied in multiple specific ways, but also in his openness to new ideas and his willingness to push beyond the expected in parting from accepted lines of belief and thought. And he describes in his um, discussion of between native and alien land and on the boundary, he talks about parting from accepted lines of belief and thought, pushing beyond the limits of the obvious, and radical questioning that opens up the new and uncharted. Tillich's legacy calls us to critical questioning in every area and every arena. We can learn from his insights, but we need to push beyond them. In his last lecture, his last sentence calls theologians to be open to, quote, spiritual freedom, both from one's own foundation and for one's own foundation, end quote. Thank you. I have the un unenviable task of being the last, and I fear the least. Uh, thank you for your patience. Um, Probably Marianne and I should have exchanged our, our response papers because I'm struck by how many things we share in common and picked out that uh, we must have been channeling each other in some <laughs> psychic way to which Tillich would have been open. Uh, 
as a matter of yes. <laughs> Well, it's been 50 years, of course, which is the occasion for this, con this conversation, 50 years since Tillich's passing. And in that light, the time certainly has come not only to take stock of his legacy, but also to assess his promise for the future. I'll undertake a bit of both in my, both tasks in my remarks. I'd like to begin by making an obvious, but I think still nonetheless noteworthy point. And I invite my colleagues to help us think about this. Despite the presence of a North American Paul Tillich Society and the Paul Tillich Group at the AAR, Tillich does not stand at the head of a theological school. There are precious few among us who think of ourselves as Tillichians in the way that Bardians are Bardians, uh, no slight to the Bardians intended, <laughs> or the way in which process theologians relate to Whitehead. Many, perhaps even most regulars at AAR Tillich meetings participate because we find him good to think with and not because we seek to defend his theological system as such. It's worth pondering in our general conversation what the absence of a Tillich school might mean for Tillich's legacy. I believe that the absence of a Tillichian theological school does introduce a kind of fragility to that legacy, but it may also, in a rather unexpected way, extend his reach and influence. There are many, both within and outside the academy, who feel free to work with Tillich in creative fashion without feeling bound to sign, with or without blood, to a theological platform heavy on a German idealist ontology. And that freedom may well broaden his influence and legacy, whereas a tighter obligation to fidelity or allegiance may constrict. Outside the academy, one finds a robust defense of ground of being theology in the work of figures such as, most notably, the Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. His program for how Christianity must change or die is largely a resolute call for a ground of being theology, a call that would be largely unintelligible apart from Tillich's call for the God who is God beyond God. Spong has learned from Tillich, but feels in no way compelled to reproduce the particular details of Tillich's formulations. Marianne already mentioned in, that inside the academy, Jonathan Z. Smith has argued that Tillich stands as, quote, the unacknowledged theoretician of the AAR's entire enterprise. Now, those of you who were present at the session in which Tillich, uh, 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 Professor Smith made that claim know that he does not think of this claim as good news. He thinks it's rather bad news. Tillich's notion of ultimate concern, he argues, is improperly generalized and, sever and severed from a specific Christian ontology that gives it theological gravity. But that severing has a double consequence. On the one hand, it has generated a fertile, but also nonetheless unwieldy account of religion as the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern. Good news or not, this is quite a claim, the claim that Tillich is the unacknowledged theoretician of the AR's entire enterprise particularly as that claim comes from a figure whose eminence in the academy in our time rivals that of Tillich in his. Spong and Smith show that Tillich's ongoing legacy remains enormous, even if ambiguously so. 
I need not go into uh, what I was going to speak about next, namely it, uh, the, the business of uh, United States versus Seeger, yeah. because that has to be mentioned in assessing Tillich's legacy, because if a theologian becomes part of American jurisprudence, that's a pretty heavy case to make for uh, saying that 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 theologian's ideas have become installed in culture. I'd be happy to talk about that more later if, if the matter comes up. Now I want to ask a question that I, um, it's really for all the panelists, and, and again it's meant to invite reflection because I think I need help on this matter. I think further complicating our work of legacy assessment is that Tillich's legacy, uh, Tillich's theology of correlation generates for itself, I think, a kind of necessary built-in obsolescence. Hmm. Tell me if that's right. Here's what I mean. The work of correlation, as demonstrated brilliantly by all our panelists, has to be performed ever anew as concrete cultural situations undergo metamorphoses. One must think new situations by appeal to, and if necessary, new symbols. All of this was just brilliantly laid out uh, in, in Harvey, Harvey's paper. The work of correlation is therefore always a work of creative construction. Theology lives by the new syntheses that result from such works in creative correlation. An inevitable consequence is that older projects in correlation necessarily become provincialized and relativized. Tillich was adamant about the loss of meaning, meaningfulness that will inevitably result should we risk merely repeating the old in new times and new contexts. Confidence in revelation requires confidence that it can speak anew and afresh in new situations as they arise. But such confidence also requires the willingness and the courage to let go of theological formulations that no longer serve the present historical or cultural situation. Hence, it may well be the case that many features of Tillich's own correlational project, however vital in his own time, may no longer be meaningful and transferable to our context and cultures, even if the general method itself, and perhaps also a general commitment to ground of being theology, survive, which I believe they do. I'm wondering if the panel didn't just perform the case that I just made. Um, the method remains. An openness to refiguring how we imagine divinity remains in each of the speakers. But the, the very texture and the details of the project don't seem to remain. So I'm wondering, uh, particularly for Harvey, but I think the question can really be one that all can address. Do you agree that the method of correlation builds into Tillich's work the kind of built-in obsolation that I contend exists? And perhaps that explains why Tillich's system as such cannot be carried forward and therefore cannot become the basis for a school theology. Does that make sense? That's why you can't actually run a program like process theology out of Tillich because the method that he builds undercuts the very possibility of such a kind of school uh, project. I think um, that's partly what I see happening in each of the papers. <clears throat> now, I'd like to speak a little bit about one dimension of theological creativity that hasn't been 
addressed by the panelists, namely his own lifelong fascination. And I'm emphatic about saying this, his lifelong fascination with other religious traditions. While it is true that Tillich's work in Christianity and the Encounter of the World's Religions and his final lecture, The Significance of the History of Religions for the Systematic Theologian, mark a new stage in his thinking about religious diversity, his interest in religious diversity goes back to his student days. And, uh, and then in his earlier career, his conversations with Rudolf Otto. Mm. His work in What's Wrong with Dialectical Theology, mm. written against Barth, also takes seriously the incoherence of an account of Revelation as a stone thrown into history. References to other religions and specific theological traditions within them can be found scattered and rather abundantly throughout his corpus. When we turn to a consideration of these materials, I believe we are no longer speaking of an obsolete legacy, but about an as yet unfulfilled theological promise. When we look at the whole scope of his statements about other religions, we see that Christian theology even today has yet to learn lessons that Tillich took to be vital. First, Tillich was adamant, even in the first volume of the systematic theology, that final revelation is dependent on a larger history of revelation that makes final revelation possible. Christian claims about Jesus the Christ, even the very language of tradition, is dependent on the resources, insights, and vocabulary of Near Eastern religious history. Even to say Jesus is Messiah or that he is Christos requires a religious vocabulary that is dependent on a larger history of religion. And so he writes, quote, the event which is called final revelation was not an isolated event. It presupposed a revelatory history which was a preparation for it and in which it was received. It could not have occurred. Astonishing, isn't it? It could not have occurred without having been expected, and it could not have been expected if it had not been preceded by other revelations which had become distorted. Mind you, 1951, uh, there's still a kind of supersessionist discourse of final revelation, earlier revelations becoming distorted. But note also what else he's saying. It would not have been the final revelation if it had not been received as such, and it would lose its character as final revelation if it were not able to make itself available to every group in every place. The history of the preparation and reception of the final revelation can be called the history of revelation. A very broad claim about human religious history as such, not all of it, by the way, is the history of revelation because there's much in it that's not revelatory, which he readily admits, but the history of religion is required as a backdrop that makes possible Christian experience. So he is arguing that our tradition is possible or made possible precisely by its relationship with and learning from other religious traditions. This kind of profound receptivity this kind of even porosity to other religious traditions still is largely absent in our discourse about other religious traditions, even among contemporary pluralists like John Hick, who imagines 
that the ver various world religions are paths up the same mountain or planets orbiting around the same sun, all of which, of course, are images of solipsism. They don't betray that these planets are constituted by, uh, by their interactions. Right? Even imagining them as planets distorts the history of religion. And Tillich is already, in 1951, well past such an imaginary. For Tillich, human history has always been open to divine disclosure. And if that were not the case, human beings would not have the resources with which to long for, receive, and be transformed by final revelation. Now, skipping a bit and moving from 1951 to 1965. All this talk about final revelation is significantly transformed by then. He has co-taught with Mircea Eliade at the University of Chicago. He has made trips to Japan. And his own way of engaging with religious diversity has therefore radically been transformed. So listen to how he speaks now. Quote, there may be, and I stress this, there may be a central event in the history of religions which unites the positive results of those critical developments in the history of religions in and under which revelatory experiences are going on, an event which therefore makes possible a concrete theology that has universalistic significance, close quote. The emphatic affirmation of the Christ event as final revelation has now become an explicitly provisional may. Still, he affirms what he had always affirmed, namely that New Testament understandings of Jesus and his work, as he puts it, quote, did not fall from heaven like stones, but there was a long preparatory revelatory history, which finally in the kairos, in the right time, in the fulfilled time, made possible the appearance of Jesus as the Christ. A kind of inclusivism remains, but it has been rendered provisional, fluid, flexible, and open. How? Well, he argues that the history of Revelation shows itself to include three fundamental factors, the sacramental, the mystical, and the prophetic. Religious discourse always take the takes the form of the experience of the holy within the finite. That is what is meant by the sacramental. But every site of sacramentality is vulnerable to demonization, whereby the particular itself can be mistaken, and often is, for the holy. Therefore, two kinds of critique are and must be summoned to protect against this possibility, the mystical and the prophetic. The mystical points beyond every particular to the ultimate, which is not itself that particular. And the prophetic introduces the criterion of justice, the ought to be, which also guards against demonization. Any religion in which these three elements are united, he calls, quote, the religion of the concrete spirit. An odd phrase, and he knew it was odd. One usually doesn't think of concrete and spirit together. Tillich then does something interesting, and actually it has a kind of Bardian feel to it. Uh, which perhaps he'd be mortified to hear me say, but he's not around. Tillich goes on to insist that the religion of the concrete spirit cannot be identified, quote, with any actual religion, not even Christianity as a religion, quote, close quote. 
Rather, it is the telos goal and norm of every actual religion. We can see the whole history of religions, and this is a quote, in this sense, as a fight for the religion of the concrete spirit, a fight of God against religion within religion, close quote. It is true that Christians, Tillich argues, will regard the appearance of Jesus as the Christ as the decisive victory in this struggle, namely this fight of God against religion within religion. But, but, and this is his crucial final step, the religion of the concrete spirit also appears in other religions. No religion is itself the religion of the concrete spirit, not even Christianity, even though Christianity testifies to the appearance of Jesus as the Christ. And then he makes what are virtually his final public remarks. I believe he has the stroke, uh, the, the heart attack that he uh, has that evening but dies um, 10 days later. Tillich concludes by saying the theologian needs to undertake a new task. He admits that his entire project has been shaped by conversations with the secular. But now he adds, and I quote, but perhaps we need a longer, more intensive period of interpenetration of systematic theological study and religious historical studies, a task the AR has yet to accomplish, where this bifurcation still remains and antagonisms of all manner of provinciality between these two camps, as though they, 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 they're intrinsically incommensurable, continue, much to my obvious frustration. Sorry I'm ad-libbing here. <laughs> uh, so he argues we need an interpenetration of systematic theological study and religious historical studies. Under such circumstances, the structure of religious thought might develop in connection with an other or different fragmentary manifestation of theology or the religion of the concrete spirit. This is my hope for the future of theology. Close quote. Here we have Tillich articulating a vision for what contemporary scholars call comparative theology. Comparative theology, as Tillich sees it, remains a resolutely theological endeavor. It's fully constructive and fully committed. But it proceeds in conversation and engagement and learning with and from other religious traditions. One even discerns, and perhaps I'm pressing him here, one even discerns the possibility of a kind of double commitment that he did not, and in fact explicitly did not believe was possible when he wrote volume one of the systematics. That is to say, a double commitment to more than one tradition. I mean, Tillich on his own ground says you cannot even speak about revelation as being present in, a, in another tradition apart from a kind of existential engagement. One doesn't just pick out revelations the way one picks out trees or stones. Someone has to be grasped in order to make the case that, that something revelatory happens in another tradition. Insofar as he seems to be making just that kind of claim about the presence of the religion of the concrete spirit in other traditions and asking us to do theology, not descriptive work, but theology in conversation with such disclosures, I believe he is opening the door to the possibility of a theologian who is 
existentially concerned and committed to more than one tradition. The theologian, qua theologian, is now, and I believe existentially so, therefore, open to encountering revelation as it takes the form of the religion of the concrete spirit and other traditions. Theology then unfolds as committed reflection that draws from the resources of more than one religious tradition. It is this groundbreaking hope articulated in his last public words that remains in my estimate the deepest and as yet unfulfilled promise of Tillich's still open and unfolding theological legacy. Thanks. We are fortunate because we do have time to allow the panel members to ask questions of one another. I'd like to invite anybody who would like to question one another. And when we've had a little bit of time for them to have some interchange, I will then open to the floor, which will be a challenge in a room this size, but I'm certain we can work with it and overcome it somehow. So panelists, do you have interchange that you would care to explore? Juan? I do have specific questions um, okay. to panelists, which obviously <laughs> I didn't get to. Um, <laughs> and I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Uh, for Professor Jennings, I'm wondering if, um, uh, by the way, utterly brilliant paper. I find it particularly compelling because of your addition of cultural resistance not merely cultural creation. And I think that's implicit in Tillich's thought, but perhaps not explicit. And in so make, in, in, in particularly highlighting that feature, you've given us a, a real extension of Tillich's uh, work, and, and I think we're profoundly in your debt. I'm curious, though, you didn't speak much about King. I, I can't read virtually anything by King without finding love, power, and justice all over it. Yes. Um, and his his learning from Tillich that love can't be powerless, and Tillich's own legacy of absorbing Nietzsche uh, and a kind of vital life power as integral to what what spirit does for us, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all of this seems to be taken lock, stock, and barrel yes, yes. into King. And I even read perhaps. The claim, his most famous claim, that the long arc of universe may be slow to bend but bends towards <laughs> justice as a kind of ontological claim that at the, the grounding and structure of reality is the God who is the ground of love, power, and justice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's not obviously a kind of temporal optimism, a kind right. of naive everything right. will be okay in the end. I, right. That's not what he says particularly. Mm -hmm. That's why I read him this way. So I'm wondering if... Mm -hmm. Um, you have, I'm sure you've thought about this. Sure. And I'd just love yeah. to hear you musing about about um, this matter. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and, and by the way, thank you both for those brilliant responses. Absolutely wonderful. Well, you, you know, I stayed away from King because that's, that's the obvious place ah, to yes. turn yes, to is. look at um, Tillich's influence. And I wanted to try to capture um, the wider range of deployment of Tillich. And I even, you know, I, what I wanted to do was to start to call some names of some, some pastor figures mm -hmm. who um, had made use of Tillich. And I think what you see in so many people, especially 70s, 80s, or 60s, 70s, 80s of um, um, African-American and African intellectuals drawing on Tillich is 
precisely the way Tillich opened up the possibilities of a critique of Eurocentric thought. And a book needs to be written on how Tillich was used, Tillich as a European was used to defeat a certain kind of European theology. I hope you'll write it. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think it shows both, um, as you were saying, and I think your point about um, the malleability of, of Tillich's thought and but also the creative possibilities, especially for peoples in the midst of struggle, to, to make use of someone like Tillich. It's almost like the, the perfect meeting at a particular time. And I, I, I think we always want to keep in mind the temporal dimensions of this, that um, in the 60s, the 70s, trying to find um, interlocutors who, um, whose work was expansive enough, creative enough, and um, looking in enough directions to be useful to so many um, African Americans, Latinos, and others, Tillich was was right there at the at the center of that. Others of you, does anyone else have a question? I do. Yeah, I, I, John will carry on if you don't. I go ahead. Do. <laughs> um, for uh, Pam uh, again. I, the paper was not merely exhaustive um, and descriptively fine. It was occasionally moving uh, to hear that people's spiritual and theological lives were saved by, by um, Tillich and that this permitted them to actually have the vocations that they actually had. And um, I'm always gratified when we come to these spaces and actually find that my, my, my heart, my affect, is being mobilized and not just my my brain. So thank you for that um, elegant paper. Uh, My thought was that the thing that Tillich offers psychology is not any of his answers, but a question. What is the relationship between spirit and psyche? Or the merely psychological dimensions of self and something else called spiritual? Now, uh, Robert Russell rightly pointed out he will not talk about spirit as another level. Uh, That was very precise. He will speak of it as another dimension. And as a dimension, it won't be something that is higher in a a narrow sense. uh, So spirit is not sort of a level that replaces the level of psyche. But it is a way in which the psyche is somehow gathered up together into some kind of unity, and I know here's where both of us have issues about unity discourse. But there is something, he says, that happens when in relation another person and I enter into meeting. And in that meeting, a dimension emerges, which he calls the dimension of spirit, which he also calls the personal communal dimension. This personal communal requires the other which activates the dimension of spirit. And then person as spirit begins even to take a kind of ownership over and and directs his or her own psychological life in a kind of recursion made possible by encounter with another. All of this is very fertile, it seems to me, um, because it doesn't make spirit into stuff, um, and, and it doesn't disconnect spirit and psyche, but it does suggest that 
that there are problems we face that won't be cured just by visiting the local psychoanalyst. Like, just being like Woody Allen and getting thyself to a therapist won't do. The th there remains a kind of theological task. And I'm wondering if you could muse about that. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, where, to, where to pull the thread to start? In your comments, um, and also what you were saying earlier about concrete spirit, I couldn't help but thinking this would have worked a lot better for him in German. <laughs> yes. Because I keep hearing Geist. And Geist is not the kind of, the, the way, especially North Americans, I think, equate spirit with some kind of platonic soul that's detached from the body. I think he's really talking about Geist, and Geist is necessarily a cultural and a corporate phenomenon. It is not necessarily an individual psychic phenomenon. And, and where you went as you were continuing um, is exactly where I was about to go, which is to say that uh, this is an interpersonal and even intercultural move that I think he's really talking about here. And in our North American way of thinking, we tend to reduce that to something that's much more individualistic than what he probably had in mind. Um, I will say, I don't know what kind of shrink Woody Allen goes to, <laughs> but these days in contemporary relational psychoanalysis, um, and, and this is the, the orientation that I have as a um, well, psychoanalytically trained pastoral theologian, intersubjectivity is huge. And so you don't anymore do therapy as kind of, you're the bug under the glass that I'm going to dissect and figure out how to fix you. But even though we have asymmetrical roles as therapist and patient, um, there is thoroughgoing mutual influence and that, in fact, much of what goes on in the person of the analyst is understood to be reflective of what's going on that cannot be symbolized, much less verbalized, in the patient. And it comes into this shared space that we co-construct continually, and it's not like one thing or there's one meaning that you're finally going to arrive to and have a cathartic conclusion. So I actually think... Um, although some of the language would be different and they wouldn't necessarily talk about spirit in a religious way. In fact, psychoanalysis is moving very much in that same direction. And because there's a few of us who are hanging out in those circles, that's coming into pastoral theology and pastoral psychotherapy as well. And it's, it's kind of a hot new paradigm looking at this intersubjective relationship of mutuality. Thank you. Professor Cox, you had a question? Um, I want to just comment that we ran a program for seven years called Science and the Spiritual Quest, uh, funded by the Templeton Foundation. And it really was a chance to probe Tillich's wonderful phrase that religion is the content of culture and culture the structure of religion. In this case, to look at culture through science and to see ways in which scientists who pursue their, their profession see it explicitly as a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And I mean in the sense of Geist. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really was a, a, a wonderful opportunity. It was um, intercultural. 
uh, and interfaith. We had all major world religions as participants and distinguished scientists. And again and again, uh, the kind of uh, very evocative and disclosive comment would be, you know, the doing, for me, the doing of science is a practice which puts me in connection with what life is about, what my life is about, what the, world, the universe is about, and for those who are theists, what God, God is about. Um, it, it was an amazing encounter because scientists don't usually talk about their faith. Uh, they tend to, to cover it over or put it aside. But this gave them a safe space. Uh, and I think it was, uh, to me, an example of Tillich's deep insight about the religious dimension of every aspect of culture, and in particular, the aspect of culture that's embodied in science, with its intersubjectivity, uh, its humility, to telling you how to falsify my ideas, yeah. right? Not how to prove them, but how to falsify them. And the quest in a community to discover something beyond itself that transcends the community. So I, I'm, I'm very happy at this occasion celebrating um, Paul Tillich so wonderfully, my dear colleagues, to suggest that uh, if you can tap into it and find a way to bring it to, um, to voice, that the doing of science can genuinely be a, a spiritual practice, uh, I think Tillich would have found uh, wonderful. Thank you. Yes, I wanted to uh, inject a, a little bit of nostalgia here. Uh, having uh, had the privilege of studying with Paul Tillich and being part of his famous home seminar, to uh, recall that the battle that was going on in that home seminar was still the battle between Tillich and Karl Barth. Carbart was very much in evidence. We had Paul Lehman on the faculty, and you don't hang around very much with Paul Lehman without reading a lot of Bart. And many of us were involved in the home seminar and also in Lehman's seminar on, on Bart. So the, the arguments surfaced, and Tillich was very patient with them, up to a point. And then he'd, uh, he'd kind of move it, move it away from, from that. Now, I guess the question I wanted to ask, I'm going to come back to that, a question I want to ask in a minute, but I wanted to also interject something here about students and Tillich. Nobody was teaching Tillich uh, that I know of, even in mentioning Tillich in the last few years at Harvard Divinity School, and a group of students came and asked me to uh, organize a seminar uh, on Tillich's writings, which I've been doing, I said, well, that's, isn't that nice? I'm supposed to give a talk at the Tillich Legacy. Maybe you can help me write it. And they, they, <laughs> they did. They were very interested in precisely what you were talking about. Ah, but what does Tillich have to say about the, new, about the religiously pluralistic situation we're in? And I knew there were some references here and there, but you've certainly helped me now to go back and, and, and think about that more thoroughly, and I'm very grateful for that. I should also say that we have the archive, as you know, the Tillich archive in our library. So we went to visit it one day, and we discovered something that I thought was just wonderful there. Dated in 1910 was a police report. Paul Tillich had been arrested, and it was from the Polizeiamt. I think, where was he in 1910? Was it Tübingen or Marburg? Or does anybody remember? 
It was, it was, and he was arrested for singing too loud in the street. <laughs> I, I really like that about Tillich. A singing too loud. It didn't say that he was inebriated, but one can f kind of fill in that as a subtext. A little full of Geist. <laughs> Geist, yeah, lots of Geist there. Now, now here's my question, though, uh, that I, I hope many of you can answer, uh, respond to this. It still bothers me, and it goes back to that uh, home seminar, and it was reinforced more recently. One of the, one of the avenues through which Bart was making himself known to us was, of course, the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who is very critical of what he takes to be any theology that tries to uncover the weakness, the yearning, the brokenness, the suffering of, of human beings. And I think he uh, uh, had in mind maybe even Tillich there. No, we want to build a theology, a Christian theology that is at the center of the town on strength and not on weakness. And he, he, uh, he goes on in the letters from, from prison to criticize this kind of tactic of, uh, of uncovering all the weaknesses and then bringing in the, uh, uh, the answer from answering theology. Now, uh, that has continued. I think he has a point. I think he has a point. Uh, Bonhoeffer has a point, uh, built a little bit on his, uh, on his uh, own reading of Bart. Now, I was in Germany last year and uh, giving a lecture there and met with a, a theological faculty uh, in uh, Marburg, and we got talking about Tillich, and they said, look, if you talk to people today in Germany, it's almost impossible to uncover any of this existential anxiety. They're just not thinking about that. They, they don't, it doesn't occur to them. They're happy, well-fed burgers, <laughs> and uh, Angie Merkel is taking care of things, and they, uh, so it's just not there. Now, you could come back and say, well, Tillich didn't say it was so obvious. You had to uncover it and all of that. But it still haunts me that we may be moving into an era in which most people, large numbers of people, are just not that concerned or touched by these, uh, these uh, uh, ultimate concern or anxiety that Tillich made so central to his theology. Can I, can I speak to that for a moment? Because it's interesting... Um, that that's the experience in Germany because still in Northern Europe anyway, um, what's happened in the discipline of pastoral psychology and, and pastoral theology is that it's, turn, it's done a very strong empirical turn in terms of the research. And in practice, it's almost always framed right now in terms of existentialism. They even use the term existential care uh, so at least in, when, it, when it comes down to practice, they're, they're groping for a term that doesn't carry the freight of any particular religious tradition. And whereas in this country and some other places, spiritual care is becoming the term. Existential care is still being used quite a bit in the Netherlands, for example. Um, I think primarily there, but in Scandinavia. So it's funny how these things kind of find their way like trickling down a, a mountain, they find their way into other places in which theology is, is being put in a very directly correlational model. But does this kind of existential uh, uh, therapy uncover some kind of existential angst? Is well, that, do they start with it? Is it still a premise of that approach? I think both and. Uh, it starts there and it looks, I mean, you, look, you, you get what you look for to some extent. But I, I think in general where um, 
psychology, past, pastoral theology, not, not so much empirical scientific psychology, perhaps, but um, even there in the social psychology branch, but certainly in, in any kind of more humanities-based psychology, psychoanalysis, I think the concerns have shifted, as I said in my paper, from existential anxiety about being and non-being, and you could argue un until the end of time that, well, it all boils down to that, but I think trauma, uh, trauma suf suffering and questions of evil and theodicy because of um, the Holocaust, the atom bomb, I mean, I, I think that there's been a turn toward trauma that has become more front and center than thinking about existential questions of being and non-being per se. And of course you can go back to being and non-being through that, but you get a lot of suffering along the way and that becomes more the focus, I think, in what's going on right now. Anybody else on that? that? Yeah, Others the, of you? The interesting question is, I mean, I, I'm facing some of these questions even in my classroom when students say, ultimate concern? I mean, this seems weird. Why should I be ultimately concerned about I mean, the very notion seems sort of provincial and sort of overpressured, overdetermined. Like, don't, you know, why can't I just sort of do many things faithfully and well? What is the business of, you know, driving everything towards ultimate concern? So analogous questions are being asked. I'm wondering, though, whether the method of correlation is in itself meant to address the kind of question that Bonhoeffer uh, might have been signaling. That is, insofar as a, the method of correlation is not exercised, then you're selling a prescription for a diagnosis that no one is experiencing. That is, it, you know, persuading people that they need forgiveness because they have uh, infinitely offended an infinite God. It seems as though in certain Christian quarters, you still have to persuade people that they have that particular weakness because then you have the right snake oil for that particular ailment. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what Bonhoeffer was against. That's correct. Well, and that's and the correlation whole law is, and gospel. Is exactly meant to like not Like you've got to convince people of their feeling of sinfulness so that you can relieve them of that guilt. I mean, that's a caricature it, of that. You know, if I could just say, I mean, it's often said about medicine that it's an art, not a science. And I think that if we took that to heart for theology and for encounters with people and, and interconnections, that it would be helpful to us because that opens up possibilities instead of this prescriptive idea. I wonder if we aren't both in the U.S. and uh, in Europe having a collective meltdown, particularly in America, at this particular moment. Uh, the society seems to be enacting a kind of dysfunction that verges on the demonic. Uh, and the Republican Party is exhibiting it with this routine speech demonizing refugees um, and speaking of them in, a, in really repugnant and fascist ways, right? Trump is now explicitly functioning as a fascist, wanting to register every single Muslim. Right? So that it's, all, it's all over Europe as well, yeah. Eastern Europe in particular. So there is a kind of psychosis, uh, a cultural psychosis that is... Uh, rising to the level of what Tillich would have called the, the demonic. And the presenting problem is the, is the presentation of the other, mm -hmm. the apparently unassimilable other, who is understood to be unassimilable in principle, the Muslim other 
And of course, uh, white privilege and white supremacy in America is having a, a breakdown over Black Lives Matter because, again, its own un understanding of itself is that it cannot assimilate the black other, the raced other. So I think that would be my way of doing a kind of correlation, mm -hmm. Pilikianly, about a kind of pathology that's, that, that is rising to the level of the demonic in this particular historical moment. And I don't you. know if that's weakness exactly, but it is a kind of weakness too. So I, I don't know, Harvey, if that answers your question. I don't know whether we're ever going to get the questions answered, but what I would like to do is make certain that we've invited the other questioners in the room to please come in. And I've already had a hand. Rob James, please. respecting his uh, openness to other faiths. Rather, I would say, oh, wow, oh, good. Okay, rather, I would say, and this is my general, really, and the important point, that it's unfair to call even systematic theology one supersessionists unless we take it in the rather odd sense that when any group engages itself with a faith and is in, grasped by that faith, for that group, and insofar as they are thus grasped, other alternatives are superseded. At bottom, that is what Tillich is doing, and his warnings early in that volume are when he says roughly in the first sentence, theology is a function of the Christian church, and when he goes on to explain what he means that by the uh, theological circle and the fact that he will work within that. I've tried to explain all this. I thought in conversations you and I had had, but in any case, in my little 2003 uh, Tillich and World Religions. Yes, sir. I think there's uh, another situation in the world today that uh, we needn't worry about the, uh, a shortage of angst and crisis uh, to become a challenge for us to respond to. And that is, we've got global warming, remember? We've got uh, refugees from uh, terror. Uh, terrible uh, situations. We've got, you know, uh, gender issues. We've got race issues. We've got boiling of, of crisis right and left. So uh, let's, not, let's not worry. You know, there's, there's work to be done. Thank and you. And I hope, I hope you'll, you'll take a position on those because uh, you can have a lot to offer. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, Dr. Russell, you mentioned uh, toward the end of your paper that Tillich's work could, with regard to time, offer to physics great opportunity for further study. Um, I'm wondering if Whitehead could be helpful here with his notion of the epical durations of time uh, with regard to quantum theory, and if there's an analog that you see in Tillich uh, to, to Whitehead's epical durations. If there is an analog, what could it be, and how could that kind of come to light um, with this conversation moving forward with quantum theory and, and Tillich? Uh, 
Uh, th thanks very much for the question. Just briefly, I do use uh, Whitehead in, part in my chapter six because I do think he captures the notion that the notion of, of the extensive present in our, in our mind, in our memory anticipation, is grounded in nature. It isn't just an emergent property. So if that were the case, if your metaphysics was uh, the kind of dipolar metaphysics of what it, what it has with mental and uh, physical poles, even in natural occasions, and if the experience of duration we have as a given reflects that in nature at its bottom level, then uh, of course you'd say, well, then physics should be expanded to capture that. And we've, we've not captured it, right, because we've used this notion of the continuum of points of time as our mat mathematics in the calculus. So I think um, if what it says it explicitly, if Tillich were to be read in his very few comments on the multidimensional unit of life, in which it says the dimension of the inorganic is changed when it's within the dimension of the organic, if that change isn't an emergence, but a, a manifestation of what's already present potentially when the inorganic is by itself, then you'd have uh, a basis in Tillich to support that. So it depends on how you read Tillich in his comments of the effect of the embedding in the, of the inorganic in the organic, emergence or manifestation. Thank you. Other questions? Well, we've only been here nearly two hours. And it's not a sin to uh, leave before 6.30. <laughs> oh, Harvey Cox has a question. If I, you I wanted to ask my colleague right next to me here about uh, the discussion going on in evolutionary theory now. Uh, you might call it the directionists uh, against the uh, non-directionists or the com complete uh, contingency school. Uh, <clears throat> I had a wonderful chance a few years ago to offer a course uh, with... Uh, the late uh, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, a paleontologist, who was uh, very, very critical of any suggestion that you could empirically find any sense of direction or significance, let alone progress, in evolution. It just isn't there, he, he said, uh, that, that uh, coincidences made everything happen. And don't, don't mistake the fact of complexity uh, for being more advanced. He once uh, made everybody in the class laugh by saying, you know, the most successful life form on the planet is not human beings, it's bacteria. <laughs> and they're very, that's very simple, very simple. So we could come or go uh, as complex human beings. Now, this was pretty hard for a lot of students to take. I mean, once having swallowed the fact that there is evolution and not just the creation in seven days, they like to think of it as directional, at least. And I'm, I'm still kind of puzzled by this, and you're just the guy that can help me. I'll give it a try. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, there are two or three questions in it. I'll be very brief because we're getting uh, late on time. So, so one question is, is complex life forms, uh, sentient life, inevitable in the universe? So you've got the Carl Sagan's uh, saying yes, you know, billions of, of uh, ET and you've got the uh, Goulds, uh, Francisco Ayala, saying no, that you, you'll probably get microbial life throughout the universe. That's almost inevitable. 
and that's more than in, inanimate forms of matter. So that's progress of a kind or something. But you, Why the is that progress? Not, it's, they wouldn't say progress. In fact, they would say it's 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 a sense of direction mm -hmm. uh, towards complexity. But it's very unlikely that you would get sentient life elsewhere in the universe. Maybe one per galaxy. Uh, and it's all over the question of contingency, right? Uh, the asteroid that hit the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs over here. All those contingencies down to the level of quantum mechanics will, can be read in one of two ways. So some will argue for direction and, and it's inevitability. Some will say you only get uh, direction if you somehow have the right set of, of contingent events and then once life is here, uh, it's because of variation selection and adaptation is almost inevitably going to become more complex. Adding that it is, is progress, of course, is a, la a metaphysical layer that you'd have to presuppose is, is true. And most biologists don't, don't assume that. But you can, and you, can, you can read it into it if you have that framework. Um, for us who are theistic evolutionists, we see that the, the biological framework within the context of a belief that God is the ongoing creator. So the, the directionality comes from, from God, not from nature itself. Um, lots of really good pieces that go on, but I'm going to leave it as a short answer. Well, might God have built contingency into the plan for creation? And yes. Yeah. Ever since Arthur Peacock uh, in the 70s, we've just taken for granted that uh, divine ongoing creation is a matter of the relation between contingency and necessity, or law and chance. Mm -hmm. You need both general physical laws to give you a regular world, you also need biological chance in the form of, say, genetic mutation, uh, epigenesis, and so on to get to produce life. But the big question is whether you would inevitably get complex life, and most people say probably not. Uh, so it raises the, th the theodicy question even more strongly. Can I say there's also a very strong parallel discussion going on right now in psychology. Um, Steven Pinker was recently on a panel at Union, uh, and his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, has, he's making the claim through a combination of evolutionary and social psychology that we are getting better as human beings and more ethical every day in every way. And um, I completely disagree with his book. Uh, and I, I still hold more with Freud's idea that man is wolf to man. Um, however, I think that what psychoanalysis brings to that conversation is, is actually in some ways very Tillichian in the sense that um, if you're unaware of your wolfiness, you are more likely to enact it willy-nilly than if you become aware, in which case you now have the freedom to make choices and that opens the door to ethical responsibility. None of this helps us what one whit about eschatology. You know, but, but I do think that psychoanalysis in some ways has a, a better response to our innate aggressiveness than this notion that we're just getting better all the time, which I think the evidence is, it, the jury is out on that, but the evidence isn't very apparent to me. <laughs> one last comment, John. None of the panelists uh, answered the one question that I sort of directed at all of them, namely whether there is a built-in obsolescence generated by a theology of correlation and whether that isn't why Tillich in principle can't function as, the, as a school theologian in the way that a Bart can or a Whitehead can 
um, I'm curious as to what people think. I think I we are. Say, John, I, I, I agree completely. There is a built-in, and thank heavens there is, uh, a built-in obsolescence in the method of correlation. Uh, you don't get a, a continuing school, but you get a, a method which is applicable in a wide range of, of different contexts, even ones we can't imagine at this point. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. Can I say also that I think that's true of Luther as well? Huh? That we can look at question, the, the question was raised earlier about the justification. I mean, we're really talking about is a 16th century question about justification relevant? Right. We might not need Luther's answers to some of the questions about justification if that's not our questions today, but I think his method was in a way very much also a correlational method and that that infuses some of Tillich's method as well. Let me also thank John for your question. Um, and my sense of it is that Tillich's method of correlation, um, as Harvey just said, will continue to be generative, but not in, and uh, not in the sense in which you might have a school-like process theology. My mentor, Ian Barber, did everything he could to show the role of science in process theology, but it, it's limited to the question, do you bias metaphysics? Mm -hmm. If you don't buy the metaphysics mm -hmm. of white and a heartstorm, you're not going to see the value of process theology. Whereas Tillich doesn't really have that single commitment to a single metaphysical system. It's in there. He's Heidegger, all, all that stuff. But it's not, to me, it's not the same as process. And therefore, it, it's, in your sense, obsolete. In my sense, always self-renewing as a method. May we thank our panelists for a very interesting afternoon.